This is the East Trauma Cast. Trauma Cast. Trauma Cast. With your moderators, Levi Proctor from the University of Kentucky, Lexington. Dave Morris from the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. And Matt Martin from Madigan Army Medical Center. This program is brought to you by the online education section of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. Advancing science. Fostering relationships. And building careers. Hello and welcome to another edition of TraumaCast. My name is Dave Morris and I'll be moderating this discussion today. In this episode, we will be discussing the East Literature Review that came out in February. This was done by uh, Dr. Niels Martin, who is an assistant professor in the Division of Traumatology, Surgical Critical Care, and Emergency Surgery at the University of Pennsylvania, and a member of the East section of Manuscript and Literature Review. Also joining us in this discussion is Dr. Robert Martindale, Professor of Surgery and Chief of Gastrointestinal and General Surgery, and Medical Director of Hospital Nutrition Service at the Oregon Health and Sciences University. We also had Dr. Martin Schreiber, Professor and Chief of the Division of Trauma, Critical Care, and Acute Care Surgery at Oregon Health and Sciences University. Kevin Schuster, Associate Professor of Surgery in the Section of General Surgery, Trauma, and Surgical Critical Care at Yale School of Medicine. Dr. Andrew Bernard, an Associate Professor of Surgery and Section Head, Acute Care Surgery, Trauma, and Surgical Critical Care, and Trauma Medical Director at the University of Kentucky. Also joining me for this discussion today was Dr. Matt Martin, my co-moderator of the TraumaCast series. Uh, welcome, everyone. Thank you for joining us. It's great to be here. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having us. It's great to be anywhere. <laughs> All right, uh, Niels, why don't we go ahead and start with you. Um, uh, you put out the February Lit Review. I know uh, I personally think these Lit Reviews are, are very helpful and very useful, and uh, one of the best things that I think uh, being a member of EAST uh, brings to me. Um, why don't you talk for a minute about how you chose the specific articles and, and why they why they spoke to you? Sure. So the Publications Committee has been doing these for just over a year now, I think, and we rotate between uh, trauma acute care surgery, critical care. And so roughly we put out a critical care review quarterly. And as I was looking through articles to present to the East community, I really looked for what was the most current in the last few months in terms of critical care. The other thing that I I obviously assume that most of the East members are flipping through J-trauma and probably critical care medicine to some reasonable degree, and so I try to also look for articles that may not be a super mainstream and may not have come across the desks or eyes of all of the East members. That being said, the first article is a critical care medicine article, uh, but I thought it really an important article in the way we practice critical care, and so that one was still included. Uh, but I do tend to try to look for uh, other critical care journals to bring um, uh, interesting articles to the light of the East membership. And I, I, for one, Niels, felt like this was a great selection of articles that are particularly important to people who are practicing trauma and acute care surgery. So I thought this was a was an excellent selection. So thank you for the work that went into all this. Um, why don't we jump right into it? Um, why don't we start off with the... Uh, Aspen guidelines and SCCM guidelines and, uh, regarding nutrition and critical care. I thought uh, this was a very fascinating uh, article and update. Would you mind, uh, Niels, just summarizing some of the 
uh, key aspects of this paper that are important for the listener to know and uh, maybe some things that you found of particular importance to those of us in the trauma and acute care surgery field? Sure, absolutely. So this article was published in February uh, of this year in, uh, in critical care medicine. And it is the several-year update to the critical care nutrition guidelines that are put together in conjunction between the Society of Critical Care Medicine and the American Society for Parenteral and Enteral Nutrition, or ASPEN, um, which is probably the definitive uh, nutritional support group that meets internationally. And these guidelines are really kind of an update. I think it's important to note that the, uh, the team that puts these guidelines together uses a very objective uh, process to review articles uh, and grade them using the grade process, uh, as is described very well in the manuscript. The other important thing to note is that this, these guidelines are put together basically with publications that ended on December 31st of 2013. So there are about two years' worth of further publications that are not incorporated into these guidelines, and that's just the nature of the process that's required to uh, objectively put out a robust set of guidelines. So with that being said, I, I really chose what I thought were really important and poignant points uh, within the guidelines that actually are uh, 53 pages long. So I think it's important to realize that uh, in my lit review, I really just touched on, on what I thought was really important to mention. And we can certainly move above and beyond the things that I talked about and talk about other relevant aspects of the guideline itself. But I guess I would start by saying the most important thing is that we continue to stress the importance of starting early enteral nutrition when someone is critically ill. And really these guidelines state, and I fully support the thought and idea that we really need to start nutrition within 24 to 48 hours after ICU admission. Um, there have been a multitude of studies looking at early versus delayed nutrition uh, and the effects of not just mortality but infectious complications and long-term morbidity. Uh, and all of the studies really suggest that early nutrition is better and that enteral nutrition uh, in particular is preferred over parenteral nutrition. Many of the historic things that we thought we needed to have to start enteral nutrition are, have not fallen out to be true, such as having bowel movements um, postoperatively is not necessarily true. And as long as you don't have signs or um, uh, high residuals or not that residuals are even um, something that we should be looking at, but as long as um, the patient seems to be tolerating, we should be feeding and not necessarily wait till we see overt signs of GI contractility. Um, and that there are many things that we probably don't do well enough to encourage uh, tolerance um, using things such as prokinetics uh, and such. So those are also things that should be uh, looked at. The guidelines did move on to discuss caloric goals and protein needs and how we should be calculating them, whether it's in dialect calimetry uh, versus really just simplistic calculations like using 25 to 30 kilocals per kilo per day as an estimate for nutrition. One of the things I always stress with my trainees is the importance of really just starting nutrition. It's great to meet your goals, but it's more important just to be giving the patient something. A lot of the immunologic effects that you get from nutrition, you can get even with trophic tube feedings. And so initiation of nutrition within 24 to 48 hours is really important, 
not necessarily to be hitting goal, but really to be giving some nutrition. And I think that that's also stressed in the outcomes of many of the studies that are quoted in this guideline. Hey, this is this is Matt Martin. Could we could we uh, real quickly talk a little bit more about that? And and Bob, I'd be interested to hear your thought. Uh, the recommendation to use indirect calorimetry. I mean, it seems to me there's not a whole lot of data that supports that's any better than any of the formulas or just using the the 25 to 30. So I'm yeah. just curious, what, why why not just recommend do the simplest thing that will get the most uniform result of 25 to 30 cc's per kilogram? Yeah, you know, that, it's a very good point, Matt. And when we read the rationale there, we, we actually can show pretty good data that shows the most accurate, but all within about 10%, uh, is indirect calorimetry. And if you have it, great. If, if The problem is billing and availability and all that. But that's why we put in the data, I think it was nicely stated, about just simple calculations, because that's where most people are going to use. And we say that in the rationale. We go through and say, well, we've granted that most people will use these, but if available and you want to be as most accurate as you can, indirect calorimetry has the data to show it's most accurate. But you're right. You're absolutely right. You know, just roughly say it looks like 25 kilograms per kilogram is fine and go from there. Yeah, I thought that was an interesting concept, too, that, uh, you know, some nutrition is going to get immunologic benefit, even if you don't quite get up to goal. Uh, you know, one of the things we struggle with a lot is patients going repeatedly to the operating room for different uh, orthopedic procedures or take-backs for damage control surgery and just the interruption that that represents uh, in their enteral nutrition. So I guess I feel better now knowing that some nutrition is, is still good, even if we can't quite get up to goal or... Yeah, I, I think, again, a very, very good point. If we look at that, there's a nice paper that we've written since then about that very issue. What is the value of feeding in the first five days? If you, you know, How much do we have to get? If we're not going to push the goal like we used to, which there's data say we don't have to, we can now show there's five or six things that are the nutrition, the actually caloric independent benefits that we stress. The, and, that, again, the rationale kind of hits that, but the subsequent article has shown that that the independent of the effects on calories and protein are these other benefits, and they have been nicely described. Hey, Bob, it's Andrew Bernard. I know this was kind of late-breaking evidence that the group may not have had uh, to examine, but did the group consider uh, putting anything in the guideline about hypocaloric, high-protein feeding? Yeah, we uh, we know that was after the 13th deadline, but we did actually in the rationale discuss that. Uh, it went nicely, and we kind of look at those, uh, which articles, you know, would go there. Of course, the Arabi feeding is probably the biggest published in 2015 in New England Journal of Medicine. And then we, we looked hard and long at the Arabi study because we were, we felt very vulnerable to say that, gosh, you know, guys were missing big articles, the Harvey study, you know, Vandenberg's no more recent study, et cetera. But when we look at those, when critically, we did actually did meta-analysis with and without, even though we couldn't add that meta-analysis, and doesn't really change it, the overall outcome. But granted, the uh, trophic feeding in that setting uh, seems to be re very, very reasonable. And certainly, you know, the Urabi study in the New England Journal looked at both um, equal amounts of protein. It was just calories. And, of course, Peter Weiss then has gone back and looked at is it protein plus calories or just just protein alone? And it looks like protein is the big key. If you can get in a relatively high protein formula, it doesn't have to be up to calories. Very good point. 
And I also felt uh, this update was was great because of the emphasis or the the extra added uh, clarifications in terms of surgical patients, trauma patients, and uh, you know the 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 obese patient population, which seems like uh, it's always sort of a, a discussion and challenge about how do we provide appropriate nutrition for for this population of patients, which has has been challenging in the past. So, yeah, I think another good point is. This came up mainly because, you know, the Canadian guidelines get lots of press about, and also the the European guidelines. Well, the Europeans, in their guidelines, first printed in 2009, like ours were, and then they've gone on to separate them out. And we thought, well, look, you know, we're not going to get critical care guys to read five different journals to get five different things. So let's just try to bring in, although some of it was quite abbreviated, we can bring in at least and show where to get those references and make some recommendations for the guy at the bedside who doesn't want to have to go to five journals to find the right articles. And I think to that point also, online where you find this article, there's a supplemental material link that basically boils the recommendations down into a table format. So if if, if the reader doesn't have the opportunity to read the entire article, there's really nice uh, sort of table of, of what the recommendations are, and then the strength of the recommendation and the strength of the evidence, which I thought was extremely helpful. So, uh. Dr. Martindale, I'd like to ask your opinion of, uh, as we're talking about the Canadian guidelines, in our own discussions here, we came up with, uh, we found that the Canadian guidelines actually suggest or encourage post-pyloric feeding uh, a little bit more strongly than these Aspen SCCM guidelines where I think the language is in high-risk patients, we suggest um, more distal feeding. But I think the Canadian guidelines are a little bit more forward in suggesting that where possible, post-pyloric feeding should be considered in almost all critical uh, care patients. Not sure what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, uh, great question again. And that comes from the Canadian guidelines being just medical patients. If you're a surgical patient, you're excluded from the Canadian guidelines. So I think in the medical patients where they've come to the ICU after usually five to seven days in the hospital and end up in the ICU, they've already got an alien set up, and that's a much more difficult patient to pop to feed in the stomach, whereas most of our trauma patients and many of our surgical patients, their motility prior to the surgery or the trauma was okay. And if we feed that population early, usually gastric is okay. So we felt, gee, we don't want to write a guideline just for the medical patients, you know, because we want to encompass all of them. So let's write the guidelines as we did. And the rationale there says, if at all possible, feed the stomach. If you start early, you're going to successfully be better than if you wait five to seven days or this is the subsequent disaster that ends up back in the ICU. Those patients will probably not be successful at enteral feeding in the stomach, so it would go to distal feeding. But only when you've used distal distal feeding, only when you fail the stomach. So you give it a try. If it doesn't work, then you go distally. Bob, I think that's one of the great things about these guidelines and always has been is that they're multidisciplinary. You know, the lead author, uh, Steve McClave, he's a gastroenterologist. So our our colorectal surgery partners, our our GI medicine, pulmonary critical care, medical ICU colleagues, these are the guidelines we should all be using. And uh, this is Matt again. And uh, for, for Bob and Niels, uh, the other thing I, I liked in these guidelines is that you very specifically added the, you know, all of this should apply after resuscitation or stabilization um, and, you know, not during the 
unstable period or the patient is getting floridly septic. And, and Bob, I wonder if you'd comment on that of, of uh, you know, what do you use to say, okay, patient is stable now or can initiate can initiate nutrition therapy, and then Neil's also maybe you comment on what you guys are doing. Yeah, uh, we, you know, we would use a standard high protein formula. Medical ICU that would be just a, a, a root whatever your run of the mill high protein formula is your institution. In the surgical ICU, we still show significant benefit from the immune modulating formula, and in the you know trauma patients who haven't been quite so specific, except in head injury, we make that recommendation. But generally, we start very early, and we try to use, in the trauma and surgical ICUs, the immune modulating formula with data supports it. But the medical ICU, we don't have that strong data. So with there, we recommend just a routine high-protein formula. Okay. Sorry. Let me, let me clarify. Bob. <clears throat> what I meant was the guidelines say to not start it, you know, in a patient who's unstable, to wait oh, until they right. stabilize. Okay. Oh, so I'm, I'm just, I'm just wondering of, of how yeah. you determine that they're now stable. Yeah, I think... You know, the routine things, if you, you know, urine output, uh, organ perfusion, acidosis, you know, even looking at things like dis- severe distension, we would hold, so those kind of things. We try to be as clinically, uh, you know, focused as we can, you know, so that some nurse or a dietitian go to the bedside and go with this patient and I really because, of course, they're not going to follow like the critical care doc will, you know. But generally speaking, you know, the routine things we look at, urine output, Perfusion, acidosis. Are they requiring high dose pressors, et cetera? And is that what you guys are doing, Niels? Yes, I would agree with that. I would say that we, you know, we all don't spend three days, you know, slowly recapturing our patients. I think we really try to aggressively capture our patient hemodynamically. And if you've done that within 12 hours, then I think you can very quickly start thinking about feeding your patient. So I think we all agree that early resuscitation and quick capture improves outcomes, and I think that as long as, as soon as you have your patient reasonably captured, that you start thinking about starting nutrition. Do I completely wait till people are off pressors and have a completely normal lactate and a completely normal everything? Probably not, but they certainly need to be heading well in the right direction. Uh, will I feed someone on a very low-dose vasopressor who may just be a little bit vasoplegic now, but not necessarily in hypovolemic shock? Yes, I would. So I think that, you know, you still need to hemodynamically capture your patient, but I don't necessarily wait for every parameter to be normal before I start feeding. Oh, I I would agree with that 100%. Absolutely. That was very well said. Thank you. (laughs) Thanks. This is uh, Dave again. Uh, Dr. Martin, I have a question. Uh, It seemed in the guideline there was several... Bob, please, I'm getting... I feel like an old man here. Well, it seems like there are several recommendations that are uh, the quality of evidence is graded low or very low, and yet there there are still strong recommendations. And I'm just wondering about the process, and can you comment on the the mechanics of how um, how you came to those uh, recommendations? Yeah, this is basically semantics. You know, when we look at we look at what the clinical outcome versus what the science can support. And, and the, we had two people that were grade experts on the committee, uh, which they said, we can't say this, we can't say that. And, of course, there's no strong evidence according to them, you know, right. basically. If it came from a 10,000 patient observational study, to them that's still very low, very low quality evidence. But the clinical impact of what we say is very high. 
So we would say if we look at this in the, you know, on our forest plots, if our little diamond is way to one side, we'll see that's strong evidence. But if you look at the quality of each individual study in there, it's graded. So like we got 20, stu 20 studies, and you have to look at pretty much the quality of even the lowest-ranking study based on the weight. And so that's a really, you know, we were not – we were not happy to have to say that on those, but to be with the legitimate grade system, we had to quite the quality of the evidence, and that's based on the weakest study of your whole forest plot. Understood. And, and there were, I think, 400 and some 400 plus studies quoted in the article. So it obviously yeah. that's a tremendous amount of work. So uh, I guess yeah, the the way it was done was every article that we looked at was reviewed by two people who independently graded the article based on randomization, quality of study, data collection, blinding, et cetera. And then it came to the committee, which then evaluated that they believed that there was a controversy between the two, then it was solved by the committee, said we agree with this person, that person. And then, of course, that got added in. Luckily, we shared uh, some of this time and energy with the Canadian group. So we took the medical ICU stuff from the Canadians, and we gave them our surgical stuff, but they didn't, still didn't add in. So the, the Darren Halen's group was very, very generous with us as far as loaning us data uh, that had already been done. I have one more topic to bring up uh, myself uh, on, this, on these guidelines, and that is the topic of gastric residual volumes. These guidelines have really started to move away from routine measurement of gastric residuals. And, in fact, um, uh, state that they should not be part of routine care to monitor patients. Um, but if they are utilized, that we should be using a volume of 500 cc's uh, before we deem the patient intolerant. And uh, although I, I generally agree with the concept, I think that, uh, especially in surgical patients who were always worried about aspirations, uh, uh, they uh, were a little bit contentious. I'd love to hear uh, the group's opinion on uh, their use of gastric residual volumes. Is there a magic number, um, and uh, how often should we be checking them? I can, I can comment how we came up with the 500. <clears throat> you know, we started back in uh, in really 97 with looking at 200 versus uh, zero, 200 versus 300. Then we went to four, 350. And then really the two big studies that made us go to 500 were the Montejo study done out of Spain, which is a multi-center randomized prospective trial, 160 or 170 in a group, and then followed, which there clearly showed the GI complications were slightly higher, actually, when you did check residuals, but the goals of feeding were met equally, and there was no increased risk to, to check in that high volume, that 500 cc volume compared to the 200 cc volume. That was a randomized prospective trial published in uh, – that was published in uh, Intensive Care Medicine 2010. But really the icing on the cake came from the Rainier study, which was – I believe that was JAMA or New England Journal. I think it was JAMA 2013. In that case, they looked at ventilator-associated pneumonia, infection, mortality, and calories delivered. And that was to us very, very interesting. It was a randomized prospective study. Done primary center was France, where they had 220 people. Got they did not check residual volumes at all, and they had another 225 or 230, somewhere in that range. They got routine checking, you know, and then changing output based on anything over 400. And they showed ventilator-associated pneumonia was unchanged, infections unchanged, 
mortality unchanged. Number of emesis was slightly uh, higher in the group that was getting checked, and the calorie delivery was significantly different. And the one got 300, and one got 550 or 500. I forgot the numbers now. It's been a while since I looked at that paper. So I think those papers, and since then, in 2014, which of course we couldn't add, we've had two papers showing identical data. And now we've got a good data showing by pulling out and checking residual, very seldom does it ever go back in on the big observation trials. And now you're losing the protein and, you know, all the other good things that are in bile and gastric secretions, which are helpful to the patient. So I think we have both theoretical as well as physical data to show that there is really no big advantage to the measuring gastric residual volumes. Although, that being said, uh, it's difficult to get ICU nurses that have been practicing more than five years to not do it. That, you know? that was my next question, is it seems like an unstoppable force. Yeah, my wife is an ICU nurse, and she told me if I got a gun, she'll quit measuring them. <laughs> <laughs> and not quite you just take bad, a but... soft poll of the audience members, how many people are still checking well, how many? I guess in how many people's ICUs are gastric residual volume still checked? I know ours is in uh, Rochester. Yeah, ours is, and we use a, you know we use a cutoff of four hundred. Marty, what do you think about our unit? What do you think we in general? We uh, we uh, are checking residuals, but uh, in general, towering you know four five hundred. Yeah. yeah. This is Andrew. We're using five hundred. Uh, Bob's impact, but. Uh, this is Marty. Uh, Bob, I, I do have a question for you uh, about the parental nutrition. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think the data is good that early parental nutrition and people aren't tolerating animal nutrition is not beneficial. But in your recommendation, you've got a, uh, a, a period of seven to ten days. And, you know, it's always we've always sort of thought if you're, not, if you're not getting adequate nutrition by seven, we start. Ten seems like a long time. Is there any evidence for ten? Uh, no, no, no data. Well, 7 to 10 is where the early data was. And, you know, this is sort of rewritten from the 2009 guidelines because there's been limited big studies, randomized studies showing a difference. But you're right. We do now say, especially based on the Harvey trial out of England, which showed enteral versus parenteral in a pragmatic study, a very nice study, very well done. And that study shows uh, nicely that they're equivalent. So we have to say which we kind of hint at, again, we had it, we were limited by the date at which we collect, quit collecting data. We had to pick a date. We picked, picked the 13th, uh, 2013, December. So we knew the literature was coming there. We're all obviously reading that literature. So I would say if we wrote that today, if I wrote that today, I would say if you cannot get up the goal by, or you cannot get adequate protein, and I don't really care about the calories so much, by day three to five, I would suggest adding supplemental parenteral by about day five. Yeah, and this is Matt again. And, Bob, that and Neil, that brings up a, a great point of kind of my overall reading of these and the Canadian guidelines are kind of this, this is a big comeback for TPN. Yeah. And, you know, we used to say it's a tool of the devil and had all these infectious complications, but those were all line infections, and we all know now, Line infections are, are almost a never event with modern catheter care. So, so I read the guidelines as, as much stronger recommendations for TPN and the recent literature as, 
there's really not much of an increase in infection risks with TPN, and some of them show no increase in infections versus enteral. Uh, so yeah, I is, think is that, is that a lot of your, your take on it? Yeah, I think a lot of the problems came from uh, came from the idea we gave way too many calories in, and we gave way too much omega six fat. Now, remember, the rest of the world has fish oil interlipid, which is most common smoth. That is the most common lipid written worldwide today, intravenous. And we'll soon to have that. 2016, this country will have it. The theory is, uh, and the stories I've heard, that we'll have it. So that will change all this, and we'll be able to liberalize our use of TPN, those patients not tolerating enteral. I think one of the most important things that we need to take away from this is that TPN itself may not be as harmful as we once thought because we've gotten much better with Lyme infections and such. But I think it's very important for us to also note that TPN does nothing to maintain the gut's immunologic function and that that is a really important component of preventing ICU-related complications. And so one really interesting thing that we should all be paying attention to in the future moving forward is going to be the studies that come out on the marriage of both enteronutrition and TPN, whereby the enteronutrition maintains the gut's integrity and immunologic function, and then caloric goals are supplemented and reached by the addition of TPN. So I think those are going to be really the interesting studies for us to all look forward to in the future. Right. Well, and, and also I think we've we've talked about this as if we're talking about, you know, a standard ICU patient. I think the other thing that you guys bring up in the guidelines, Bob, is that there is a low-risk and a high-risk population, and those should be treated very differently. Uh, and, in fact, I think you recommended, you know, TPN immediately if it's a high-risk person, who can't tolerate enteral. So, yeah. so could you tell us how, you, how you're defining high and low risk in your ICU? Okay, that, that's a great uh, great question. You know, we, we went round and round about this, and I think that we, nobody can define malnutrition. And so for us to say that, you know, we should look at malnutrition, assess the patient if they're malnourished, feed them. And, but there's no good definition. There still isn't for 30 years of this. So we decided, well, let's look at what's out there that tell us what's the best patient. So we looked at nutritional, really, risk scoring. And there's two systems out there that have been validated for the ICU. One is the GENS Condrip 2002 called NRS 2002. It's validated for medical ICU, surgical ICU, for patients as well. And that was published in 2002, and it's commonly used in Europe, not much in this country. Basically, that takes uh, three different deal. It basically looks at three things. It looks at impaired nutritional status and severity of disease. So put you at a certain risk if you come to us with various diseases, then you look at how what their you know severity of illness is. But the most recent, which has now been validated without the uh, IL-6, is Darren Halen's Nutrix score, that's N-U-T-R-I-C, which is a very nice system that looks at age, Apache 2, SOFA scores, number of comorbidities, and days in the hospital prior to ICU admission, which are not hard to calculate. I know it's a little bit of a pain in the rear to calculate those, but if you look at that, that's now validated for the ICU population, it, well, for the medical ICU population, we should say. So I think that's a very valuable tool. We used to have to put IL-6 in there, but that became a useless marker as nobody had it, so it didn't become 
but in 2015 it was validated in clinical nutrition in 2015 by Halen's group. So I think that gives us, we don't have to worry whether they're malnourished or not. We just calculate a risk score and say, oh, this pushes into the high risk. So the, this is Dave again. My, uh, one of my big questions about after reading the recommendations was uh, the de-emphasis of you know, quote-unquote traditional markers of malnutrition like albumin, pre-albumin, total protein, uh, things like that. Um, I just, I'm curious what what else uh, people doing are, are doing out there in other ICUs because I know we still check them, but maybe we shouldn't be. Well, I think we're still using them as well, uh, more so maybe not as a static checkpoint, but as a way to look at progression over, say, a week's time uh, to ensure that we're heading in the right direction. Uh, but I think that we still will occasionally get a uh, 24-hour UUN, and I think that when available, I mean, we have a metabolic cart where we can still calculate a respiratory quotient, and so we'll do that occasionally too. But, again, those are going to be on a lot more specific patients and not necessarily all comers to our ICU. Yeah, and this is Matt, and, uh, and I agree with that. And, and we still use them. We just, we just never use them in the acute phase of illness. Uh, yeah. So, so oftentimes they're out of the ICU, or when they're you know very stabilized, and then they're getting into more of a chronic nutrition issue, and you know checking a weekly prealbumin. Uh, but I think in the acute phase, none of that adds anything. Prealbumin, you know, UUN, they're going to be a negative nitrogen balance if they're sick. It, it doesn't have much to do with nutrition, <laughs> and there's not a whole lot you can do for it. Hey, it's uh, Kevin Schuster. Just curious what everybody thinks about using markers of inflammation, which is kind of what we do, and. Um, in terms of whether we believe the prealbumin, I guess. You know, do you, if you have a CRP that's super high, then you'd sort of ignore the prealbumin and vice versa. I, I, I personally like the ratio of CRP and prealbumin because that ratio kind of tells you we know now that we can give all the calories or protein in the world. If they're highly inflamed, they're not going to use it. You know, it's going to be cycled, unfortunately, in the wrong cycles. So if they if we see the prealbumin coming up and we see the CRP coming down, well now we know this is a time which the patient should become anabolic and we've overcome that anabolic threshold. So I think now that they're both automated tests and they're both about two bucks, it's reasonable to use it as a physiologic gate of where the gate of where they are gauge of where they are in their inflammatory process. So I think that's our future is measuring where we are on the inflammation stage because that really tells us what we can do with our nutritional practice and anabolic metabolism. Uh, yeah, hey, this is Matt again, Bob, and I have two questions. Uh, one, you guys recommended against the routine use of a formula with the omega-3 uh, borage oil and antioxidants in patients with ARDS and ALI. Yeah. And I think the Canadian guidelines recommended for that. Uh, so, so I'm just curious. That was one of the few one of the few differences I noticed between the recommendations. Yeah, a couple of differences there. One is they're remember they're only talking about they're only talking about medical patients there, not surgical patients. And in their newest guideline, they also say the borage oil is probably not so critical, but the fish oil, the Manzanares meta-analysis, basically will show the fish oil is still beneficial, but we don't have data for the borage oil. So the oxipa. Where we studied Oxipa, Todd Rice's group in Vanderbilt, and I think the other group out of out of uh, Vermont, basically gave just the active ingredients as part of the problem. There was no background nutrition to find on some of that. Uh, but Todd's paper really dramatically shows really no big benefit to the 
sort of uh, specialty formulas in that for the uh, the ARDS formulas in that group. So I, I think right. we the day we had three four papers that were published starting in 2002 uh, up through the data from uh, South America and Pontus Rudis data in 2006. Whether that's a whole other story, whether that was true or whatever, but. Then we had the three papers now showing no benefit. And the most recent paper, uh, the Van Zanten paper out of Belgium, shows no significant benefit in that population with with the uh, you know and just an omega three looking for ARDS. Okay, is anyone on the line using uh, any of the immune modulating formulas for ARDS ALI patients? This is day We are not, I think, mainly due to the real paucity of true ARDS ALI patients, and we just don't see right. them quite as often as we used to. Yeah. Now, we still think it's a variable formula for a trauma patient, head injured, but not not oxyco one, but the one, the other arginine containing formula, I think are still very valuable, but not not a formula specifically designed for ARDS, I think, is useless. Marty Schreiber told us to quit using fluids. <laughs> so now ours went away. That's right. Hey, hey Bob, uh, the, the arginine, uh, I spent two years studying arginine in the laboratory. You, you think the arginine could potentially uh, potentiate SIRS? Do you think that's because it's an immune oh. enhancer? Is that why it's not proven anything in the, on the medical side? Yeah, hard to tell. I actually, you know, the reason we used to think that it might cause a problem, there's no population we could show harm now. You know, we have seven population, seven publications uh, in the various states of sepsis, human studies, seven now showing beneficial on all those. Either no change, I mean, no cut uh, detriment to changing hemodynamics. But most of them showing benefit, and most recent showing better perfusion, you know. And so I, I think the days that our gene is going to make a big comeback here. The data is pretty strong to say that it's probably helping us rather than hurting us. Many people argue sepsis and and severe resuscitation requires, and Fred Morris data would support it that arginine is deficient in the in the uh, septic patient. So the question is, what's worse? Giving arginine or studying arginine for two years in the lab? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Good question. Uh, last question for me, Bob. Uh, glutamine. Can you comment yeah. briefly on uh, both enteral and parenteral glutamine supplementation? Yeah. I mean, again, I was, I was one of those who was uh, – was thinking glutamine is good for everybody. I thought I might give it to my kids, you know. Uh, and for since Wilmar published his first papers in the 1980s, uh, up until we saw the first paper that maybe was cracking the glutamine idea that maybe it wasn't all that great for everybody was uh, Marco Braga in 2006, the first paper that showed no benefit in the surgical population, mostly colorectal. And then came the Scottish trial and then the Swedish trial, and then uh, the we got early data for the Glendy trial, which is the surgical population in this country giving parenteral. And then, of course, the Redox trial, which is Darren's group, which is a combination of enteral and parenteral with a very high dose of glutamine causing mortality, higher mortality in the severe, severely organ failures, sick patient. So I think 
Yeah, I think there's still a population that burns probably especially where it probably looks like still going to be beneficial. And there's a small subset of surgical patients where we know the glutamine level is low that's going to be beneficial. But we can't say to give it to everybody anymore because there are patients who will suffer from too much glutamine. You know, when remember the early days, I'm sure you guys remember with glutamine was like, oh, every, we assumed everybody had low glutamine when they got to an ICU. And as we go back and look at the serum glutamine levels and Paul Wishmeyer and, and that group that read them, the Redux trial, Darren's group, showed that some people are high in glutamine. If you give glutamine to a patient in the ICU with high glutamine and renal failure, those are the ones who died. And so we had a higher mortality in those that got glutamine. But when you go back and sort of do a post-ad hoc of that, you realize it's the patients with renal failure and mostly renal failure and some with liver failure, but renal failure was a big key. So clearly we can't give it to patients with renal failure and severe renal compromise, which is half our patients. You know. Okay. Well, uh, Niels, any other uh, sort of uh, summary comments about this article or anything before we move on to the next one? Sure. Uh, no, I think we've had a wonderful discussion. I think that uh, it's important that all of the listeners flip through this article. There are many more takeaway points that we did not touch on. Um, and stay tuned. Again, this, these uh, guidelines really stopped with it in 2013, and so there's a lot more coming and, and there's a lot more in the works. So um, this is an important topic that often gets uh, a little bit pushed to the side for more important needs and in, in the care of our patients, but uh, certainly one that we need to continue to put in the forefront of our minds. That's great. I, I would agree. Uh, uh, very nicely said. Uh, there'll be a new set of guidelines, supposedly 2019 is the next set. I can promise you I will not be co-chair of that one. After doing it twice, I'm done. <laughs> so, okay. Because it's a ton of work, Bob. It's a, he did a yeah. great job. Huge amount of work. Oh, it's you. obvious. Yeah, thank you. All right. Well, let's uh, let's move on to the second article. Um, this uh, second article is the effect of uh, age-stored autologous red blood cells on human endothelial uh, function. And Niels, why don't you uh, would you mind just kind of summarizing briefly and telling us uh, about this article and why you chose it? Sure. Uh, so this was published in November of 2015 in the American Journal of Respiratory uh, and Critical Care Medicine. And this was a really exciting uh, article for me because the topic of blood cell transfusion and transfusion triggers continues to be a hot topic. It's been one for years and I think in many years to come. And I think the reason that it's such a contentious point is not that we feel that blood is bad, carrying oxygen blood carrying capacity is great. Uh, but it's all of the detrimental things that come secondary to our current transfusion processes um, that are the issue and that force us to create a balance between giving blood and not giving blood. So there are the theoretical benefits of oxygen carrying capacity, and then there are all the downsides and detrimental things that blood transfusions do to our patients. Um, uh, and so this article really looked at um, what the effects of blood storage alone are on blood transfusion. And I think that um, blood storage and how old the blood and how well it functions is certainly one component of um, blood replacement therapies in this country and probably throughout the world. 
uh, one of the great things the military has seen was the fresh whole blood um, and the walking blood bank that they have and how their outcomes have been so much better than what we see in the civilian world with blood that has been banked. And not only has it gone through the banking process, but it's sat on a shelf for quite some time. And so this study took healthy volunteers, had them donate blood, and then gave them back their own blood after having gone through the banking process and stored for either five days or 42 days. In fact, every patient got their own blood back. They got half back on day five, and they got the other half back on day 42. And then the uh, the group then measured um, uh, a couple different things to look at how well this blood functioned in the volunteers, in the healthy volunteers. Um, and so just, again, on premise and, and the process of uh, putting this study together, I found it really a great one, and that's why I chose this article. So this is Marty uh, Schreiber. You know, I, I found this article to be interesting, but I think you, you sort of have to read it uh, while thinking about other literature on the topic. And, there, you know, there's quite a bit of data suggesting that older blood has bad outcomes in terms of infectious outcomes, multiple organ failure, mortality, uh, these types of things. Uh, but the problem is, and this is really uh, heavily discussed in the paper itself, is there are two recent prospective randomized trials, uh, recess and ABLE, recess done in cardiac surgery, uh, which randomized people to younger red cells versus older red cells. And then the ABLE trial, which is done in critical care or ICU patients, uh, again, comparing younger versus older in outcomes. And those two studies, good, large, prospective randomized trials showed absolutely no difference in outcomes with respect to morbidities or mortalities. Uh, and, you know, there are several shortcomings in, the, in, those in those papers that this paper points out. One of them was that the old blood really wasn't that old. Uh, you know, you're talking about 23, 25-year-old, uh, mean, median or, of uh, 23 to 25 days old in the older groups in those two studies. And the other important point was that uh, the volume of blood given was really not that much. It's like three or four units in each of the studies. So what this study tried to do was overcome those shortcomings. And the way they tried to do it was, well, number as pointed out earlier, they used five-day-old blood versus essentially 42-day-old. So they're really looking at the whole spectrum of the age of blood. But then they also did this by infusing it intraarterially with the hypothesis was that by, by introducing it intraarterially, they were uh, supplying a higher concentration of blood, which was more similar to giving many more units, like a massive transfusion. So, uh, you know, that's an interesting hypothesis. I don't, I, I'm not sure that that's necessarily true. Uh, a definite shortcoming of the paper, I think, is that uh, giving blood intraarterially may be different in terms of its endothelial effects than giving it uh, intravenously. So in this model, giving it arterially is not really, uh, you know, the standard of care. So are the effects that they saw in this article, are they true effects, uh, and would it be the same if the blood was given intravenously? So that's a, that's a question that I think is unanswered. Uh, you know, having said all of that, I do think that the paper is very interesting. They clearly show that the responsiveness of the endothelium uh, to acetylcholine is affected by the age of the blood, that nitric oxide metabolism is affected by the age of the blood, these other things that have been shown uh, having to do with, with the age of blood lesion. So 
the paper is interesting, but uh, I do think there have short, it does have shortcomings in terms of how it was performed and is intraarterial uh, blood uh, the same as intravenous blood? I don't know the answer to that question. Uh, I think what, you know, the, what we really need to do is do these studies properly, and for trial patients, uh, I think what needs to be done is we need to do this in the massive transfusion setting. If you replace a patient's entire blood volume with young blood versus old blood, are you going to see a difference? I think you may. Uh, again, in the smaller study, in, the, in these other in, uh, recess and able, only a few units were given. They weren't given at the extremes of age. I think we can do a better study uh, in trauma patients, I hope, and you want to do it in high mortality patients like the massive transfusion patients and really get a good answer because we don't know the answer for massive transfusion. We, we, I think we have a decent answer now for small transfusion units uh, and when we're, we're not at the extremes of the age of blood. Yeah, I think these are all great, great points, and it would have been wonderful if they would have added a third arm to their study where they looked at – or uh, a third component to the study where they looked at uh, infusing the blood venously as opposed to just uh, intraarterially. Um, so I think that's a really important part um, uh, or, or recommendation. Uh, you know, I do think that this just – there have been a lot of studies uh, of recent that uh, have looked at this topic, and I think that there will continue to be because we really haven't answered the question, uh, and, and especially in trauma patients. You know, many of us in our ICUs care for patients above and beyond trauma, and every one of our consultants, whether it's a vascular surgeon or a transplant surgeon, all kind of have their own – understanding and feelings on blood transfusion triggers, and I think that, uh, you know, each of these populations really does deserve a hard look in terms of um, the effects of blood transfusion uh, on the specific physiology of that patient population. So, but I think this just adds another piece to the puzzle, and who knows, maybe in five or ten years when we truly have a synthetic oxygen-carrying uh, molecule or, or, or construct that uh, we will have a higher threshold to bring hemoglobin levels up because we can do so in a much safer fashion. So, I, I think, uh, this is Marty again, I think one thing that's really important in these types of studies is you, you really uh, almost have to do this in a randomized fashion because what happens in blood transfusion studies, if you're not randomizing patients, you get mixed populations of transfusion. So patients get some young blood and some old blood, uh, and then it's really difficult to assess what's going on because you know, are, do you need to look at the mean age of the blood that was given? Do you need to look at the oldest unit? Uh, you know, how many units of old blood is given? There's really not a good standardized method, or we don't know the best way to look at this age of blood problem in any other but a randomized setting. Uh, and obviously those are the studies that are the most difficult to do, but I agree uh, with your comment. We, really, we, we, we still really need to answer this question in the trauma population, particularly the massive transfusion trauma population, which I think – is the, is the population in which we have the potential to see the greatest difference with young versus old blood. So, Marty, this is Matt. Uh, uh, you know, I know you did, and I think a lot of us did, jumped on the, you know, the younger blood is better bandwagon. And, in fact, you know, in the combat zone, we, we went to a last-in, first-out uh, process. So, so until we have that data, what are you doing now? Uh, are, are you – not paying attention at all to whether it's old or young, or should we still be doing, you know, the for the massive transfusion patient, the freshest blood first? So, uh, okay, well, it depends where I am. Uh, I would continue, if I was in theater currently, I would continue to do last in, first out, because uh, b 
but I would do it specifically for the massive transfusion patients. So we know who, you know, with 85% likelihood in theater, who's going to get a massive transfusion. If that patient meets the criteria for that, hypotension, tachycardia, acidosis, and lower hematocrit, if they meet those criteria, I would continue to do last and first out because they, the, the, the question of massive transfusion is completely unanswered in this setting, and I, and I believe that the younger blood is better. Uh, and since we do not have data in that particular area, I would continue to do last and first out. The reality of the situation in my civilian practices, I get what they give me. Uh, luckily, uh, the age of blood that we're typically using uh, at OHSU currently, if you actually look at it, is around 28 to 30 days. It's not it's not 42 day old blood. We're not using a lot of really old blood. Uh, in a place like this, a big university hospital, transplant, cardiac surgery, uh, vascular surgery, we're using the we're using the blood up uh, pretty well, and we don't have as much older blood. But in my civilian practice, I, I, I give what I, I take what they give me. I'm not able to dictate that for my patients I can only give younger blood, and I don't know how many places do have that ability. All right, how about the rest of you guys? Are you, are you having using young blood, old blood, or doesn't matter, whatever they give you? We do what we're, we get. I mean, we're kind of at the mercy of our blood bank and our blood banking system, um, and so we don't. We have not discriminated in terms of uh, um, looking at the age of our blood. Um, we do know that at least in our regional you know, our blood bank does not manage all of our blood. We have a regional blood banking service. We use American Red Cross, and certainly they do move blood products around the area so that we maximally use our supply um, in a more regional-based fashion. Um, so I, I guess the question, one question would be, how would we design a study? You know, would it really pass our IRBs if we said we're going to randomize trauma patients to getting, you know, four week and greater old blood versus younger blood if the hypothesis is that younger blood's better, would that actually make it through an IRB? So I, yeah, that, this is Marty, I want to address that question. I feel strongly that the answer should be yes. And the reason why is because as far as the blood bank's concerned, uh, blood of any age is the same quality. And if, you, if, if it's ethical for me to order blood and for the blood bank to give me a 42 day old unit of blood, and I can give that to a patient as standard of care, then why, can't, why couldn't I randomize patients to that? So the FDA approves blood uh, use through 42 days. Uh, it's FDA approved. Uh, the literature uh, is not clear on the topic. So I believe that there's equipoise in this area. And it's, it's very much ethical to do so especially with the two prospective randomized trials, one in cardiac and one in ICU patients, showing no difference. I think there's great equipoise. That's very helpful. Thank you. Yeah, Marty, but, but when has logic applied to an IRB? I agree. It's a problem. Uh, you know, you may have a problem, and you, you're going to have to go to – you might have to go to bat pretty heavily on this. But, I mean, look, I mean, look at – the arguments are clear. FDA approves it through 42 days, two prospective randomized trials showing no difference. Uh, the particular question remains unanswered. Uh, I, think, uh, I, I think I could make it work in my center. I don't know. I, I agree. Some places may not be able to do it. So there's, uh, you know, there's been a couple of studies now looking at uh, various additives to reduce the storage legion. Uh, where do you think we are on that, Marty? 
I know you've done some research. So that's interesting. Uh, you know, the, uh, John Hess has uh, sort of led the way on this. Uh, John is uh, previously at Shock Trauma, now in uh, Seattle. And he has a storage solution uh, that extends the life of the red cells. I think it's to about 53 days, although I'm not 100% sure about that. But it does extend the life of the red cells. Uh, it seems to uh, not affect their potency uh, and safety uh, compared to 42-day-old 40, red cells and standard solutions. So uh, I think that there's definitely uh, the possibility that we could be looking at changing the storage solution extending that life. Uh, obviously, the other thing that I've been very interested in is the, is the frozen red cells, which uh, uh, when frozen and glycerized can be stored for uh, or frozen and glycerized, they can be stored for 10 years. Uh, and those cells are, uh, when, you, when you thaw them, you wash them, which removes impurities in older red cells. So you have a pure solution of younger red cells. I think those have immense uh, possibilities in the future. Our, our studies at this point, again, uh, while giving patients a couple of units, don't show a difference, but that's another area where I think uh, we need to study in a massive transfusion population as well. Well, that's a great discussion, and I appreciate everybody's input. Uh, extremely difficult topic to study with, you know, with all the variable, all the variables involved, and all the variabilities in practice, and then forget about the uh, informed consent issues and all of those types of things that are also involved. So, uh, uh, extremely important but difficult work to do. So, um, I guess we just have a couple minutes uh, left. Um, Maybe, Niels, do you want to just uh, give us a quick rundown of the other two articles to sort of wrap up, and then we'll see if uh, that stimulates any other questions or discussion, and then uh, kind of go from there? So um, I guess I can briefly talk about the two other articles that were included in um, uh, February's um, East Lit Review. Uh, the uh, next article was uh, entitled, Defining Transfusion Triggers and Utilization of Fresh Fresh Frozen Plasma and Platelets Among Patients Undergoing Hepatopancreatic Obiliary and Colorectal Surgery. This is out of the uh, Hopkins group um, published in uh, Annals of Surgery uh, in December of 2015. Um, this was a single institution study looking at uh, the incidence of FFP and platelets used perioperatively in their uh, basically pancreatic and hepatobiliary um, patients as well as colorectal patients and looking at um, the triggers for transfusion that were used um, and assessing their overall outcomes. Um, and this was done using uh, discharge ICD-9 codes in a, uh, in a very large database evaluation fashion retrospectively. Uh, they, over 13 years, had over 3,000 patients that they included in their review, um, and they found that uh, about uh, almost 9% of patients overall received FFP and about almost 4% of patients received um, platelets. Um, and interestingly, nearly half of their FFP transfusions were given to patients who had an INR less than 1.7, um, which was a very interesting finding. Um, and they both found that both FFP and platelets uh, were independently associated with worse outcomes on their multivariate analysis, um, uh, including things like longer length of stay, having any complication um, uh, during the hospitalization, including infectious um, the incidence of uh, VTE events, respiratory complications, CIC, and the like. Um, and, uh, and so um, 
you know, transfusion triggers, as we just talked about in the last paper, uh, are uh, uh, quite uh, contentious in the literature right now, and certainly this uh, adds to that, saying that if there really is not a indication for the need for FFP or platelets, that maybe um, there is uh, uh, some added risk that may not outweigh the benefits. It's it's not just a great IV fluid, is kind of the message I took away from this. It's interesting how often patients got transfused for INR less than 1.7 with uh, with plasma. It is this group. Yeah, th this is Mari. I, I think uh, you know we've done some of this research as well. The, the INR is just acutely sensitive to any uh, decrease in in the vitamin K dependent factor function. Uh, and, you know, the problem with it is that you still have very robust clotting, uh, even when factor, factor function levels are down to like 30, 40%. So that INR of 1.7, you know, probably is indicating robust factor function, normal factor function. If you do TEGs on those patients, they're normal. So we waste incredible amounts of FFP. And the platelet issue is a whole other problem. We don't, we don't know when to give platelets. Right. We don't, you know, we, we don't have a good functional assay for them. Uh, the number doesn't tell you about function. So, you know, these areas are really important, and there's a, they're really, really good areas for future research. You think we'll see a, a, a real decrease nationally as uh, TAG and ROTEM start to uh, maybe become more, more prominent in, in more hospitals? Yeah, I think, number one, we'll see less transfusion. The other thing we're going to see is earlier uh, uh, performance of invasive procedures, such as epidurals and ICP monitors and central lines. All of these things are being held up until you get that INR less than whatever your neurosurgeon wants or, or your IR person. Uh, and uh, what we're doing now is we're just doing tags on those people, and they're normal, and they're getting all the procedures right away. Yeah, and this is Dave again. We've done the same thing. We've uh, worked with our anesthesia colleagues to kind of say, hey, if the tag is normal, let's ignore the other uh, parameters and go to the OR. And they've been on board with that, which is which has really helped us a lot. Okay, um, maybe real quick, Niels, the uh, uh, Article Four VTE incidents and uh, risk factors in patients with severe sepsis and septic shock. Sure. So this was published in November of last year in Chess. And this was a really interesting paper. It was a, um, a prospective observational study that was done in um, three ICUs through the University of Utah uh, in Intermountain Health. And they basically follow the uh, incidence of VT events in patients discharged from the ICU after sepsis, uh, after uh, severe sepsis uh, and or septic shock. Um, and they used what they called standard of care thromboprophylaxis throughout their ICU stay, and they looked at uh, screening ultrasounds that were done upon ICU discharge um, and if they were otherwise clinically indicated. And what they found, interestingly, in a cohort of 113 patients was that they had an overall VT rate of 37%. Uh, upon ICU discharge in this cohort of patients who had or met criteria for severe sepsis and septic shock. Uh, and it, further, they did some subgroup analyses and found that um, both the need for a central line and mechanical ventilation were both independent risk factors uh, on their multivariate analysis. Um, and uh, the other finding that I found significant was that they found no difference whether the prophylaxis was unfractionated heparin or low molecular weight heparin. 
So although this is really just an observational study that uh, I think it's really profound that they found such a high rate of VTE events, uh, and maybe our current prophylaxis isn't good enough, or maybe we need to extend that prophylaxis out for longer periods of time, maybe even above and beyond hospital discharge. Uh, so I think that this paper and article is really just going to spur on some further research in this area. Uh, one of the takeaway points that you can maybe take away right away is that, uh, uh, you know, earlier removal of central lines, which I think is something we're already doing to minimize the incidence of collapses, uh, may actually also decrease the incidence of VT events related from those central lines. And, of course, uh, early extubation, when uh, possible, has a multitude of benefits, and again, here it may also uh, be a benefit in terms of ET events. You think this? Just, uh, Marty, this is Marty again. A real quick point. Uh, there's actually some really interesting data from uh, Miami, University of Miami, uh, where they put central lines in pigs, and they did tags before and after the central line was placed, and the central line itself uh, was associated with a hypercoagulable state as measured by TEG. So uh, I think that this data is interesting, especially when you think about that data as well, that the central line itself actually may be causing uh, a hypercoagulable state that uh, accelerates the DVT formation. Do you think this is enough evidence to maybe uh, make a surveillance DVT program part of, uh, say, a sepsis bundle? You know, that's a great point, and I laugh because we were literally as a group talking maybe two hours ago about our screening uh, processes and how it, they – are not necessarily supported by uh, other non-trauma national associations. And in fact, uh, the hospital itself tends to um, uh, look poorly in the eyes of CMS when we pick up a lot of non-clinically significant uh, DVTs on all of the screening that we do. However, you know, there's one thing to be worried about numbers and there's another thing to be providing good care. Uh, right. and recognizing patients who are at risk. So, uh, you know, you bring up a really good question. It's one that I think we're going to need more data to really support, especially uh, when we uh, try to rationalize that to our hospital administrators. This is Marty again. You know, this is a, we've been through this, uh, you know, thoroughly at our hospital. It's a real struggle. Uh, we're screeners. Uh, we have uh, sort of a moderately high DVT rate, but we have an extremely low PE rate. Uh, and I think that, you know, one way to argue this if, you know, you're pro-screening is, well, yeah, yes, I may, we may have a, a slightly higher uh, DVT rate, but we're going to prevent fatal PEs because we're going to identify DVTs, we're going to treat them, uh, either anticoagulating the patient uh, or possibly putting in filters, and we're going to reduce our PE rate. And that's exactly what's happened to our institution, extremely low PE rate. Yeah, we struggle with the same same question. Do we go looking and get penalized for finding, or do we just, you know, sort of head in the sand, pretend they're not happening as long as they're not clinically relevant? It's a, it's a tough question, especially when the money's on the line. All right. Well, I think we'll wrap it up there. Thank you uh, all who've joined in the conversation and uh, contributed so much. I think this has been a great conversation and discussion, and uh, uh, I've really brought even more clarity uh, to, the, to these issues. So uh, my thanks to everyone involved. And there you have it. I'd like to thank uh, Dr. Niels Martin, Dr. Martindale, Dr. Schreiber, Dr. Bernard, Dr. Schuster, and Matt Martin. I think this was a great discussion. It was great fun to talk to these folks. Learned a lot from listening to them. I hope you, the listener, enjoyed it as well and look forward to bringing 
future editions of the East Literature Review to the TraumaCast. And that wraps up another edition of TraumaCast, brought to you by the East Online Education Section of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. You can check out all the great educational and career development resources available on the East website at www.east.org. And make sure you subscribe to the TraumaCast series so you don't miss any of our exciting upcoming programs and interviews. So if you're searching for cutting-edge science and research, professional education, networking and building relationships, and career development, remember that all you need to do is look to the East.